I am Rebecca McCain, and I am here with Alan Winson and Chris Brandt. We are the hosts of this edition of Bar Crawl Radio's Poetry, What Is It Good For? And we have two poets with us. Uh, I tried to come up with an adjective to put before the word poets with us, such as sublime, ecstatic, nerve-shattering, mind-blowing, disturbing, revelatory, explosive, right? You get my problem? I'm not a poet, so let's just say we are joined by two truth-tellers working in poetic forms, Susanna H. Case and Mervyn Taylor. And I thought that it might be fun, before we get to know them, to listen to their poetry in their own voices, and then we'll introduce them more formally. This opening with Mighty Sparrow may be a bit of a tip-off as to our first poet. Here we go. Sugar dumpling, don't get so mad. Please let me explain. So this is the poem, Gone Away, from uh, the book title, the title poem from the book, Gone Away. Gone Away. Four years turned into 40. I missed my mother's funeral, the Black Power uprising, the thighs of an old woman that became a lifelong dream. The mountains turned brown and green that many times, the savannah too. The lane grew empty while I searched for love in the metropolis, turning back at the borders, my papers in disorder in a trunk in Brooklyn. I wrote letters that turned into poems, cryptic and pained, and read them to strangers who could only follow up to the sea. Meanwhile, the island floated away, or so it seemed, more distant each time I pulled at memory's oars, the color of its currency changing, its slang, its rumors, the music behind its masquerade. Once a year, I jumped behind them, pulling at their dominoes, hinting at my condition, and everyone just waved, welcoming or chasing. My step had changed. I had been to Rome and done as the Romans. I had pushed the door to the factory and smelled the sweat of the slave. And I was returning to the field of Cain, burning after what could be the last harvest. I am picking my way among the ruins of the small capital, the clocks that grew too large for their shelves, to salvage myself, to start over. Okay, so this is Dead Shark on the end train from the book, Dead Shark on the end train. Poor brown fish beached at Coney Island, then carried in someone's arms to the roller coaster where another man thought it beautiful and tried to transport it home, only to abandon it on the subway. And you know how it is in New York City, nothing surprises anyone. The car reeked of dead shark, and passengers took photos debating Instagram filters when the conductor asked everyone to leave and closed off that train. At the end of the line in Queens, a transit worker plastic bagged the body and normalized the car. I fled Queens when I grew up. Like sharks that migrate freely, I traveled to survive didn't want to reach the end of my line in the same place I started out from, though I ended up just on the other side of the river. When someone on the number one had a heart attack and died, his corpse rode the loop from South Ferry to the Bronx and back to South Ferry twice. Like a man in his habitat, he seemed to be napping. Unlike the shark, 
No one put a Metro card under his fin, cigarette in his jaws, can of Red Bull by his side for the journey. I ended up on the other side of the river. You ended up on the other side of the ocean. <laughs> we're both taking, I think we're both going from the personal, we're going from the personal to larger issues. And I think they're somewhat different, larger frameworks, but but they both combine the personal and 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 the larger, which I think any good poem should do. And we're both we're both talking about where home is. We're talking about it in different ways, but we're both talking about home. I'm having a small problem, guys. It's raining like crazy. Oh, and wow. it's so loud that it's drowning you guys out. So I can hardly hear what Susanna was saying. It's, it's pouring like... Boy, it's well, you know how it rains here. The rain, it, it's just so loud that I can hardly hear you guys. It's getting better. Let's see what happens. Okay, so okay. We'll, just, we'll just wait yeah. a bit. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're ready to formally introduce our guests. Now, I've known Mervyn Taylor for decades. Born in Trinidad and now retired there, Mervyn graduated from Howard and Columbia Universities. He taught at Bronx Community College, the Young Adult Learning Academy, and has been nominated many times as best teacher for his work in New York City public schools. He's published six books of poetry and won the Patterson Poetry Prize for Sustained Literary Achievement. His poetry focus, focuses on the particular and the personal, but there's always somehow the consciousness of the greater world. Mervyn's a poet, but he's also much more than a poet, and maybe if we have time enough, we'll get to that more. A couple of things, is he's got four grandchildren. He's a well-known carnival figure, masquerader in both Brooklyn and Trinidad. And he creates art out of found objects. He's also on the advisory committee of Slappering Hall Press. Mervyn suggested that we invite Susanna H. Case to the conversation because he found that there was an affinity in their work. None of us had known Susanna before this, but she has published seven books of poetry, and two of her chapbooks have won poetry prizes. Her work appears in many magazines and anthologies, Dr. Case is a professor and program coordinator at the New York Institute of Technology. So let's begin with a statement that I made to, in an email to Susanna, and which said that I thought her and Mervyn's work was quiet, in quotes. I don't think she took that very well. Uh, <laughs> she said, no, 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 some of my poems are not quiet. But what I meant by that was that they, you, you both deal with social issues, uh, immediate issues, political issues, cultural issues, wider cultural issues of the wider society, but not in an out, out loud, screaming, rhetorical way like a lot of political yeah. poems are. Instead, you kind of let them creep up on us. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, way, the way I was feeling... Um when I was reading Gone Away was that I'd be like taken on this nice little thing and I turn a corner and I turn another corner and all of a sudden something would come up behind me and slap me on the head <laughs> and kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, that, that, and, that that, was an, and that was an experience that we had with Susanna's poems too. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So, so we, we uh, came up with some examples of, of what um, you meant. And you just defined now, Chris, what you meant by quiet. And this isn't quite the word quiet. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, feel better about quiet now. Okay, you feel better about that. <laughs> That's good. Well, I think quiet is fine for me. Um, um, Walcott said something about my voice being a quiet voice, and, and I, I thought that was a compliment. You know, I think I, uh, my voice became even more so after... See, I came to poetry during the rabble days, right? When, when uh, Ima, Imamu was... was um, Baraka was still Leroy Jones and so on. And, and the beats were shouting, everybody was shouting, everybody was declaring, you know. And I came to it at that time and I had my own noisy poems, but I think gradually I felt at some point, this has got to quiet down. And maybe in the quiet, you can find a different kind of noise, a different kind of power. And I think that's what I've been looking for all this time, you know. I think that's why I like your poem Resistance so much, Mervyn, because it does something that I also like to do, which is to start with the, something personal and then to widen it out to uh, the world. And you, you do that so well there, starting with a, a kitchen renovation and ending up talking about what you were just talking about, people uh, demonstrating on the street and, mm -hmm. and how that how that unfolds and, and your attitude toward it at various points in your life. From that poem, from Resistance, you know, there's another poem, um, I, can't, I think it's called The Super Sun, and it deals with the fact that uh, it says, men who do hard work make us others get out the way, you know. So I remember my super's um, son in the building, he, he my, his father and I had a little tiff, and he's taking out the garbage, and I think I was going through the door at the same time. And he was just about maybe 12 or 13, but he hefted that bag up. And, like, he didn't say it, but it was, get out of the way, you know. And, and that's <laughs> men who do hard work. That's what they do to us who just write and so on. Get out of the way, you know. <laughs> so the poem Resistance, with those men working in the kitchen, I can't hang around in the kitchen. I can't stay outside forever. So I'm in the bedroom cooped up. And in my own house, right? And so the workers are walking by and they're looking at me like, you, you, you helpless, so-and-so, you know, you're not doing anything. <laughs> so the poem, I think, became an activity for me while being cooped up in there and um, responding to the noises I was hearing there and also the noises in the street at the same time. Maybe so, we can hear either the Super Sun or Resistance. Could, could you read oh, one of those for us? Resistance would be fine, yeah. Great. Yeah, you're gonna do it, um, Susanna. You're gonna read resistance. To read resistance. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay, Susanna's going to be reading a, a poem, resistance by Mervyn Taylor. This poem is also in um, the, the latest book, um, the Country of Warm Snow. So this is Mervyn Taylor's poem, resistance, which is in his new book, Country of Warm Snow, resistance. The workmen in my kitchen are tearing things apart. New cabinets, though I love the old country-style ones. The scalloped trim I painted two shades of blue. I hide out in the bedroom, the walls shaking as they pound and break wood that comes away with creaks and groans, nails human in their holding. 
Outside, it's a hot one, protesters on the move. I feel compelled to mention them, their bravery. Only yesterday, I came across a picture in the paper of myself and students I'd encouraged to, mar to march down the street in the village. It might have been for Mumia, the headlines gone, and I don't remember the cause exactly or what we were yelling, but now I'm thinking how nothing gives way without breakage, without some form of damage to the old, the claw hammer in the hands of the workman, the nail powerless as he approaches, the battle for dignity rages in the nights and days, the homeless joining the campaign, the retired like me hunkered down, taking notes, witnessing how there must be dissent and noise, the very floor coming up, the policeman's foot in mid-kick coming down. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, and it's, and it, and it's from uh, Country of Warm Snow, poems by Mervyn Taylor, which Can't came out recently. Yeah, it's out. It's, it's out? Yeah, oh, great. you can get it. It, right. That poem made me think of you too, Chris, because from my memory, you, you were, uh, you, you, you're a carpenter, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, so there you go. This Although song. I haven't been doing carpentry, I've gotten a little creaky in the joints to stand oh, boy. day at a workbench oh. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susanna. And, uh, I think we need a tit for tat here. Mervyn, could you read something that Susanna has written that you might call yeah. it? Or describe it as quiet, but as, um, as, <laughs> but powerful in its in its uh, impact. Yeah, it okay. something see. that slaps us upside the head. Slaps us upside the head, exactly. <laughs> okay, this is a poem from Susanna's book, uh, "Dead Shark on the End Train," and I like it because Susanna has a way of. Coming into a poem, I think you mentioned before that that um, you never know where it's coming from and where she's going to take it, but you you hang on for the ride. That's what you do. One of the things we talked about was um, who has the authority to speak for people. You know, in other words, does a, does a white writer, for example, able to enter the conversation from a black point of view or say something? like that. And um, Susanna is, is very conscientious and, and thoughtful about these things. And she she makes sure, that, it's not that she doesn't want to offend, but she she wants to make sure it's authentic, whatever that voice is. And, and that's what I think she's able to do with a poem like this. No regrets. He makes the great migration north to Cardboard Valley, Detroit, drywalled, square box project houses, his daddy on the line at Dodge. Little Willie John discovers he can sing the telephone book with attitude if he has to. Or oh, fever on a million copies, a tenor with big dreams, dreams that pole up the crazy river between church and nightclub in a light pirogue. A man so fine, so fine. Women who have forgotten now remember what's between their thighs, tell their main lies, hot and giddy. One night, a quick wrist flick at a low-rent bar, willy-nilly. He's caught with the knife, manslaughter. Steel bars hang over many a man's hangover. Behind Walla Walla's penitentiary walls, even Aretha comes to cheer him. He's epileptic, not penitent. 
says he can't remember killing, has no regrets for the life he chose, or a segregated America chose for him. No regrets, he sings again, smooth, like he means it, the dead and gone thing staying away while he's singing. It's beautiful. Um, Very powerful. We hadn't really planned on you two reading each other's poems, but this is working out very, very nicely because <laughs> I'm getting a sense you two have a great respect for each other's work. We do. I thought Chris said that we were, he wanted us to do that or something. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. We we had talked about it. We had talked about it, but we're riffing now. We're we're kind of <laughs> kind of going we're, with we're, what you we're want. We're way off script here. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. But that's yeah. that's fine. That's that's yeah. Alan. Alan puts together these very tight scripts. And then we blow them all to hell. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That's great. That's great. Susanna, you want to talk about that, how we uh, bounce these poems around? We always bounce poems off one another. I don't, I think that um, aside from reading each other's manuscripts and, and offering feedback, we, we both see each other's poems way before they get to the manuscript point. So, um, so, yeah, there's a, a familiarity with one another's work, which I don't have with too, too many other poets, at least on that level, where, you, you, where you're looking at them line by line, word by word. Yes, yeah, Susanna's got the eye. You know, I trust, trust her looking at the poems. And, and the thing is and that I'm grateful for, usually when I think the poem is done, she, she, she doesn't let it go. She'll say... Well, you're not you're not quite there yet, and I can't believe it. I say this is this is my best work, you know. And then I look at it, and of course it ends up with um, adding more or breaking it apart and doing it all over. But at the end, I I have to mutter. I don't tell her. I say, but she was right, you know. No, but I, I, I understand that completely because sometimes you'll send it and it'll have the heading "Final Revision," and I know. <laughs> That's a warning. No more. <laughs> no more. No more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But and she's a great fixer. That input and that honesty. Where did you two meet, or how how did you get to know one another? By taking the train up to Hudson Valley Writers Center, where we were both volunteering on the uh, advisory board of the Slapper and Hall Press. And how long ago was that? That must be at least about five or six years. Uh, yeah, six, I think, seven, yeah, eight, yeah. Martin Martin Mitchell um, called called me and said I should come up to Hudson Valley, and I I didn't want to make I resisted that because you know Brooklyn people don't like to leave Brooklyn too much. You know, so, <laughs> so he said, I said, are you kidding? He said upstate. I said upstate. That you mean leaving town? You mean you gotta go to? He says it's not far. It's maybe about an hour on the metro. And I say on the metro? I'm, no, I ride the subway. That's it, the, the metro. But anyway, finally he persuaded me, and I went up there, and that's where I met Susanna. And and it's been great uh, going up there. It doesn't feel like such a long ride anymore. But we met there and riding the train back and forth from uh, Hudson Valley. That one, Phillips Manor, that wonderful uh, train station that's in, turned into a reading place. So we chatting on the train and so on, and, and eventually we um, just crossed into each other's work. So when you're riding on the train, or does, 
does one turn to the other and say, look, I'm working on something. Can you take a look at it? Or, no, or we always all, all we, all we say, what we say, wasn't that second reader lousy or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't print that. Don't print that. <laughs> well, we didn't name any names. Well, we don't so. know. Who, yeah. you're, you're each other's muse in a way. Do you have one? Do you have one person you send it to? Do you have several you send it to? Do these people that you share your work with, you know, the draft of your work, do they change over time? Do you start with someone and then lose trust in them, or what is that process? <laughs> it, it may, I may have uh, at one point been sending poems to to uh, uh, to different people, but now for for critical analysis, I send it to to Susanna. If I send a poem to anybody else, it's because I think it's done and they can enjoy it, you know, but not so much for critical feedback. The critical feedback I trust is Susanna, you and, know. And Susanna, um, who do you go to? Do you go to Mervyn? I, yes, I do. I also, though, have a writing group that I've been meeting with weekly since 2002. So... Sometimes they see a poem first and sometimes, Mer no, I guess, no, mostly it's Mervyn who sees the poem first because you know how it is. You write something you want, you just, you immediately I'm want done. someone to look at it. Yeah. So uh, the, the writing book only comes around once a week. So, so yeah, I send it, Mervyn gets to look at, at it. And, uh, so and sometimes, sometimes I say, are you sure somebody else looked at this? this, this? They, they like this? <laughs> I, I have another group that meets once a month that's a more recent group, but they aren't as tough on me. Nervin <laughs> is the toughest because, and he's the one who is least afraid to say, this is a pile of crap. And I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because everybody writes at times piles of crap. And it's important when... And I, it's important when you're arguing that it's, no, it isn't a pile of crap that someone just sits you down and says. Especially if you, if you know what the person is capable of, you know, um, and you know that, that you can't get away with that because there's so much more to, to, to reap, so much more to come from that. So, Susanna, we know you're from Queens. I am. Yes. And, and Mervyn, we know you're from Trinidad. Right. So how, what, what, what was it like? What brought you to poetry? What, why did you decide at one point, hey, I'm going to write poetry? Or did it just come out of you and you couldn't help it? No, I, I think my ambition, even from high school days, was I, I really wanted to write stories. wanted to write a, a novel or short stories. But at, at, when I got to, to Howard, I think that was at the height of the whole uh, Black Power Revolution and so on. And poetry was very much the language of the revolution of those times. So I started doing that, writing some of those poems. And then I, I had the, the, the opportunity to work, to study with Sterling Brown. Who, actually, they just put out a whole um, collection of Sterling Brown's um, poems. Um, it looks really good. So I, I met him, and then I had a class with a, a guy named John Lavelle, who taught a class in Walt Whitman. And I don't know, something stuck. Something there said, oh, you can do poetry and the story at the same time, you know? So um, I think Susanna said it, that my poems tend to be always on a narrative bend. There's always a story 
coming out at the end somehow, you know. So that's what I'm doing. I'm, poems are stories. You know? Even even in the really short ones like Some Loves and, and Gone Away, so, yeah. it's, it's only it's only what seven or eight lines long. Short poem, yeah. A very short poem, but there's a yeah. whole story in it. And the doc the doctors where does it hurt? The doctor says <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Curious about this, Reverend, and we've never talked about this, but some of the people who populate your poems are, are almost—they uh, seem almost iconic. I'm—I'm I'm thinking of Sharif in the in the uh, first poem in in Country of Warm Snow. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. But what what what's that moment like for you when you first see that possibility that 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 their poetic possibility, as opposed to just the guy you're bringing your pants to? Yeah. I don't know. I, I I think I'm always looking for the heroic in in ordinary people. You know, um, one of the early ones, and from my book, The Goat, there was a guy. Um, it's called the King of Parkside Avenue. I think that was the poem, and there was a guy who hung out outside the McDonald's on that corner where I lived there, and he used to go into Prospect Park and pick up. Uh, bits of wood and so on and, and shave them into shapes and make sculptures and so on, you know. And I, I thought there was something really magnificent about this guy, tall, very dark-skinned guy, um, a, a little bit off, you know, but, um, but something majestic in the way that he would cross the street with that hunk of wood on his shoulder, you know. And he would make it and he would stand it right outside the McDonald's doorway and nobody would but people would most times don't, didn't even notice but I thought that that was something wonderful you know this man wh whoever he was I think he was Panamanian you know and he just as how he appeared there for years he disappeared I, I never knew where he went so I always feel that these are the real chieftains these these people these ordinary folks who just push carts around and do, there's a, there's a Chinese gentleman who collects bottles around my way too. I see something about him that looks like from eons ago in China, you know, a, a very courteous gentleman and so on. So a friend of mine was having clothes repaired on Flatbush Avenue at this guy's place. And when I went there, actually she said, He's, he's messing with me because he won't he can't find my clothes that I gave him a year ago and she wanted me to go there not to beat him up but to say you know listen this is my friend can you do the work and so on and I went there and what hit me was that you have in this little room like a closet there are like five guys on sewing machines just working in this tiny closet and I said this is amazing you know and and so we got to talking and so on and well, I should read the poem. I you should, absolutely should read the poem. There's a yeah. poem called Status, and it's in Country of Warm Snow by Mervyn Taylor. And then I would like to hear a poem from Susanna about a person that okay. you write about so we can match them up, okay? Status. What hits you first of all, right? This is not the poem, I'm just talking. What hits you is the sign outside his place that said, Sheriff, you know, I thought that was kind of weird, you know, Sheriff Taylor. Status, Sheriff, the African Taylor on Flatbush, wants to learn English. He can speak it, but not write it. He's from Conakry, 
a word so wonderful I say it again, Conakry. I offer him slips on which to write the names of his customers so he does not mix up the clothes. When we converse, I find myself imitating his accent, asking him where he learned tailoring skills so remarkable. The space where he sews is like a cupboard, his four countrymen squeezed in behind him. We discuss our cultures and talk about these new immigration laws, how they affect so many. I have no idea what his status is. I only know that when I stand before the mirror, my old suit looks new and that I would hide him in my house and feed him whatever kind of soup it is they love over there. Beautiful. That is just such a gorgeous poem. And it, it's so moving at the end when you say you'd hide him in your attic. Yes. It, it's so moving and yet you didn't, you didn't do anything to make us do that. You didn't manipulate our emotions at all. You just told the story. What I like about the end of it is that, and, and you know, it's one of the things in poetry that you almost can't explain. That last line, almost in the way that Africans would do it, you can manipulate that last line to go on for like five minutes. So I, so sometimes I find myself and feed him whatever kind of soup or molasses or other oranges or something. I can, you can just stretch that line forever and it still works. You know, you can add all kinds of stuff in there, you know, and that's the poem does that on its own. See, it's, it, the, po the poet cannot intend that to make that line stretch. But if that line, if it falls naturally, it, you can do all kinds of things with that last line. And sometimes I do. If I go to a reading, I just throw in a few more things just <laughs> to keep it interesting. Also brings up so very quietly so many issues related to to immigration and and status in in the United States right now when when it, it's so it's so fraught to be from another place here. Do yeah, the poems think... speak to you? Like a writer, sometimes they say the characters tell them. Do they, they talk speak? to. Them. Do they tell you what? Do they do they write themselves sometimes? Oh, well, I have con conversations with them. Um, um, like like my father, you know. Sometimes I um, I'll have my father was a man of few words. As a matter of fact, there's a poem called "Man of Few Words." I, I forget which book it's in. It might be in Gone Away. I'm not sure. I think it's but in it's Gone a very Away. short poem about my father talking to my sister, and my father hardly ever said anything. He he he. He's a quiet guy, and and but but um, very much to the point, you know. So sometimes, so I, I'll bring him in, and in the poem, I will create a conversation with him. In other words, I'll kind of make him talk in my poem, you know, where where he would not have said anything before, you know. The title of the poem, the book, No Back Door. I don't know if you guys have that book. No, I don't. No, have no that. Back, you don't. No Back Door. Those are my father's, well, it was a common saying um, with him and people of that time. Um, he said, come on, dad, we're going to the beach. Come on, go with us. And he'd say, you know, see, have no back door, you know. And so simply it means you go in, there's no way out kind of thing, you know. So, But that was my dad, man of very few words. So, yes, I do talk to some of these people sometimes. I actually went back to that tailor shop and kind of tried to share that 
poem with um, with Sheriff. Um, and it's funny, he didn't respond so much, but some of the other guys in the shop responded, especially one whose name, and, and here we go, this is how you, you find people and you find poems. The other guy next to him, his name, I asked, his name was Amadou. Oh and boy. then, uh, and of course, then his last name, Diallo. And, and it goes back to another poem of mine where Amadou Diallo is a common name in that country. And many people name Amadou and with, with the last name Diallo. But he listened to that poem and he asked me for a copy of it more than, more than this guy, more than the sheriff. I'll tell you, we one of the poems that I wanted to hear in this session was your poem, uh, and I don't have the well, name of well it. Well-read woman. Well-read woman. But I oh, think well-read woman. Yes. We need to hear from Susanna uh, a poem uh, in which you reveal a character, a person. Uh, do you have okay. something in mind? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a poem called Diva, and I wrote it after Maria Callas, and it's in. Dead Shark on the End Train, and you'll hear allusions to Jackie Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis in the poem, although they're not mentioned by name. But as you may remember, there was a very intense triangle going on between the three of them. Oh, yeah. So this is Diva. If you're forced to sing as a child and you hate it, you'll replace devotion to singing with love. If the man you love pushes you to retire from the world to serve only him, your talent just opens a hole in the earth for you to fall through. And if you're the chubby, ugly duckling as a child in your mind, you'll always be the chubby, ugly duckling, even after you bring in piles of money, a public waiting online for days to hear you. Even when you lose so much weight, you stress your voice. You'll be the difficult one, the one who is gossiped about when the man you love isn't the man you married. If the man you love leaves you to woo the most famous woman in the world because she represents America more refined, even thinner than you, you'll hole up in your apartment until he begs you to take him back, threatening to crash his Mercedes into your building if you won't. But if you've abdicated your power, agreeing to be the lesser wife, you don't have the only thing a man obsessed with power wants. It doesn't matter that you feel like a woman. He will disappear for weeks, forget to phone, call you a cunt with a whistle in her throat. Still, you'll sneak in through the service entrance to see him one last time when he's dying. His canary, you'll call yourself, your voice cracking on the high sea. Wow. Wow. And, the, and, and this is in your, um, your recent uh, book, uh, Shark on Entrain. Thank you. And by the way, for listeners, uh, all these poems are available. You can look up Susanna H. Case and or Mervyn Taylor and uh, find where to get these, these poems that we're reading today. And uh, th thank you for... Uh, for sharing all this work with us. Chris, anything about Diva? It's, it's about my favorite singer in the entire world. Her life was a tragic life. Yes, yes. Um, it, was, it was really, really awful. And out of that awfulness came these glorious high C's, high E's. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also 
she was brave. She was not afraid to make mistakes. And that's something that, you know, I love about all good poets because if you, if you never make a mistake, you never write anything worth writing. What interested me was the, the relationship and the irony of her uh, being so um, unfaithful in her, toward herself, that she couldn't see her talents, that this, that this, this very bad relationship consumed her life. And I, I'm very interested in gender, and I write a lot about it, and this, this is, was a, almost a prototypical power situation for me. So that's, that's what grabbed me about Maria Callas. This is a known figure that who you didn't know but who inspired you to a poem. But you've also been inspired by what I assume are people that you do know, and also about historical events. I mean, you do write about things that happen, kind of uh, crime things that happen, like Bolt. So that's another topic that, that, that you deal but, with. But the, person, the personal ones, we kind of wanted to ask you about whether these were truly uh, autobiographical, autobiographical uh, poems like Sign, a small hotel in Monterosso, and he pried open the classroom window, particularly that last one. Mm. Yes. Um, I, I, uh, the, at the university where I work, a, a, a economist uh, some years ago didn't get tenure and walked out of, the, out of his office, which was on a high floor, falling onto West 61st, right off Broadway. Yes. Oh, boy. Mm. And that uh, stimulated the... That poem, yes, uh, I... And that poem, have, by the way, is He Pried Open the Classroom Window and Stepped Out. Maybe we could hear that one. Um, okay. I have it on page 67. Okay, thank you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he pried open the classroom window and stepped out. My students said there's a body down there. No jump above the fourth floor is survivable said untreated depression, said job trouble, said explain what makes a man do that, said we should postpone the test. <laughs> he covered the body with a tarp, I fled tremoring. At the hospital, drug blotto me, please. I remembered to say please until I no longer see blood on the street. The emergency shrink said, I believe you abuse pills, need an excuse for relief. The words I heard lit up a marquee above the doctor's face, a face spotted and lumpy like a potato. I was together enough to know, he'd said no. You're listening to Bar Crow Radio, Poetry, What Is It Good For Edition. We're talking with Susanna H. Case and Mervyn Taylor and listening to their wonderful poetry. We're getting a lot of poems done today, which is what I wanted. I want to hear a lot of poetry. We're getting there. Uh, Mervyn, uh, your, your poem, Pictures of a Man at Peace. Oh. I never read anything like that before. And then Susanna's piece, Death Has Come In with a line from Eliot. I just saw them as kind of coming together and kind of talking to each other. 
And I wonder if we could read those. They're both about death and is life at the same time. Is the picture of a man at peace, is that in, in um, Gone Away? I don't remember. Yeah, the ones I picked, they, they're all in Gone Away. Gone Away, okay. So this is my father, picture, picture of a man at peace. And his sister was, was a, a nurse. And she prided herself on sometimes um, looking after him. After my father died, my aunt Sheila, the matron, sat him up in a rocker and had his picture taken. A strong woman, I remember she took him bodily from the bed, shunting his weight off her hip onto the cane bottom seat. His feet looked like feathers brushing the carpet before she adjusted them, forcing them apart until his heels rested on the crossbars if he had placed them there himself. He seemed to resist as she pushed his head to one side, the way he always grimaced when anyone tried to kiss him. Except for Cousin Judy. Her he welcomed and let smooth his hair and never bit, even when she pried his lips apart to look at his teeth, which were strong and white till the day he died. The rest of us he kept away from the money stashed under his pillow, snarling as the rheumatism took hold. That's when Sheila came in her retirement from Princess Town Hospital, her needles blunt as screws, working them into his arm while I watched, wincing as he winced, his skin magnified by her glasses, folding under her bifocals till he screamed in pain. Beyond that now, he sat as the photographer fixed the tripod and ducked beneath the black cover to check the focus and the light. And I remember how Sheila made him wait while she adjusted my father's pajamas and how in the snapshot that I could only bear to look at once, they had come undone again. My father's sister was, was a strong woman. You talk about... Obviously. <laughs> she, she, was, she was, I mean, even back then, she was already a vegetarian and already tough she she bought up a bunch of houses separated from her cousin from her husband stopped talking to him and just owned property all the way around the block she, tough tough lady but but beautiful you know just had her own her own way you know so she would come over to see my dad while he was ill there and i, I couldn't stand to be in the room with that so after he died my father again didn't not only he didn't talk but he never liked taking pictures so there were no pictures of my dad. So his sister says, after he died, we got to have a picture. So she take, took him off the bed, put him in the rocker, and had the picture taken. It's the only picture of my dad I have. I started to put it in this book, In Country of Warm Snow, and I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, that's my pop, yeah. Is there anything here about control? It's not so much about control. He, he just was the kind of man who did, his, who minded his own business, so to speak. You know, he went to work. Coming home from work, the neighbors would say, hey, Mr. Taylor, and, and you would get a grunt, if, if that much, you know. It's not that he was angry with anybody. He was busy with his own business. After he stopped working at the railway, he decided to raise goats. And that's what he did. And he didn't ask anybody's advice about stuff either. He just went ahead and he brought, the first day he brought this goat home, he says, he asked me if I wanted a pet. 
and he shows up with this this angora goat, this tough goat boy, Sally. And I so he says, "Here's the pet." I said, "My God, it's a goat!" And he raised goats for years, you know. But I saw, there was a moment, and I'll, maybe I'll read that one at some point um, about him raising those goats. A moment of tenderness with him that showed me that. He, he wasn't just a, a tough old guy. He was just very private and willing to do what he had to do, you know. Well, in our, our, our script does include a question about goats, and it comes a little later. <laughs> so we're, we're obviously on the, on same, the same, page. same page here, wavelength. Uh, Susanna, could, could you read us, Death Has Come In, with a line from Eliot? Yes, this is Death has come in with a line from Eliot, and it's from Dead Shark on the end train. Just uh, for context, about a year ago, actually about two years ago now, a friend, uh, a friend, a childhood friend of mine died. And um, at that point, we weren't all that close, but she needed me for certain things, including taking care of her estate after she was dead. And that's the the context of this poem. Kind of different from Mervyn's poem in that way because he's very attached to his father and here there wasn't that kind of attachment. So this is Death Has Come In with a line from Eliot. Angus Barbieri, Scotsman, holds the Guinness World Record for the longest liquid fast lasted over a year before eating a boiled egg and a slice of buttered toast. Three people fit into his old pants. Angus went on to live a happy life. Wife, kids, kept off the weight. You are not going to have that egg. Cancer 2.0 has launched three weeks with only lemon ices and ice chips. Your lump the size of a grapefruit next to your colostomy bag from the last bout. The doctors have nothing more. Even the television you love so much has spent its capacity to distract. Last time you were in hospital, we argued about politics, Kavanaugh on the screen. I yelled a lot about gender and stalked out. I am not a nice person. I sit here thinking mostly of myself, my relief the big C got you and not me. In the room, the women come and go. They jot on charts, no one talking of Michelangelo or time, except when the religious guy comes around. Burial plans, where, which dress, a sundress, a wig. How can I, a person full of words, not know what to say? You were always my best friend, you tell me and try to smile. The truth is, we have not been close since high school. I want to touch you, but I don't want to touch you. I am not a nice person. I cry, not out of empathy, repelled and scared. Your covers are pushed down and too much of you shows and I don't say anything. And yet I put that shriveled flesh in this poem. Though winter winds blow outside, the air is stifling. I pull off my scarf, my sweater, heap knits on a chair. I roll up and fold, unfold and roll out my hospital pass. Silence is the, is the 
right response to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing the thing about Susanna's poems is they bring you so much information. While keeping the song going, you're learning all kinds of things about events and about people and about things that will all crystallize in the what the poem is doing eventually. But you get all kinds of stuff coming from all corners of the globe too. That's a traveling person right there. It's so honest. Yeah. So speaking and of traveling, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was how much, I mean, Mervyn, you come from Ireland um, and, and uh, Susanna, you, many of your poems are set in Latin America, some in the, in the Midwest of the United States. How much has geography influenced your writing as an island boy I, I remember somebody's line i think it might be my friend the wild maybe who said every step you take is in the sea you know you surrounded all the way so the, the, but traveling never was a big thing for me uh, susanna's that's that's your realm but but traveling no and um another uncle of mine my father's brother used to say um, they asked him, so how come you never go anyplace? You never, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm just not curious. And I guess that's part of, <laughs> even, even this area where I live in Belmont, if you ask some of the older guys here about some place in the country, they've never been, you know, the furthest they go is a bridge called the flyover. They, they, they're not, they don't even go to Tobago, which is 20 minutes by plane away. They don't even go there. I'm, um, another a cousin of mine, I, he says, where's my, where my sister? I said, they went to Tobago. He said, for what? <laughs> there's, there's, there's just no, no urge to see anything else that whatever they see, they can see through this the refracted in this mirror, you know, and that's enough, you know. I'm, I'm not a big traveler. I have been to a few places only because I was coaxed and urged to do so. I, I think I went to, took a trip to China one time and uh, to Thailand and so, but that's not my own motive. I, 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 I never felt that I had to go too far for anything. Susanna, that's yours. Yes, my, but I'm thinking of your poem in which your passport is continually stamped. Trinidad, <laughs> <laughs> Trinidad, Trinidad, that's right. I, I, yes, I wander. A lot, and it's extremely frustrating to me not to be in a situation right now where I'm not uh, wandering, but that is, uh, I call it vagabonding and it's, uh, and it's an important part of my life, yes. And, it, and it, it ends up in poems, sometimes just as settings or things, I see things or I make up things because I'm inspired by the setting I'm in to, to make them up or something happen something magical happens i'm just curious if you think there's a difference or what is the difference um in hearing a poem uh rather than uh silently taking a poem and reading it to yourself i well it's like the private experience versus the shared one right i think there's something about if you went to a poetry reading for example and you heard these poems uh, and the 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 poet read these poems and it was wonderful but something in you says uh, after you've purchased that book something in you says I can't wait to get home and read these myself 
there's a different thing happening. It's a very private thing, right, between yourself and the story that the poet is trying to tell. And the way the images collide on the page, you know, is a totally different thing if you're having it yourself, just yourself. I'm nodding my head, which the listeners can't see, but I'm doing that because I've so often said after a poetry reading of a poet whose work I don't, no, well, I have to see that on the page. On the page, yeah. 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 I find um, myself when I read poems, not just yours, but any um, really dense poetry that is taking me to a place that is truly on the ground and real and but, but moving me, is that I have to, my eyes move back and forth. I read the beginning, I go through, I then go back to the middle. This image just impinges on a, uh, an image that's later on. And it becomes this kind of a, kind of a rolling around in, a, in, in the mud with the poem. And I never know which piece is going to like rub off on me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's an oral tradition, though. So in a way, what, um, when I say I need to see it on the page, I'm not sure how I, it makes sense. But in a way, it doesn't make sense because in, well, at least historically, and maybe not today, it, it, it should be enough to hear it. But sometimes for me, it isn't. I have to also see it. Now, there are certain things I need to change that I won't notice unless I read it. And mm. one of the things about poetry, too, in that it's um, on the page, it's, it's like art. It's written, it's, 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 it's specifically laid out. I, I assume, I, I, I think it must be specifically mm. laid out in a certain way. Yeah. The poet creates that. Where a word is, comes in at the end of a stanza, but it's lingering into the next stanza. It drops down, yeah. It, it yeah. drops down, and if you don't see that, you don't hear that. You definitely don't hear that. You have to yeah. see it. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. You asked me ab- about um, borders and traveling and so on, and I guess because I'm not a big traveler, I, I can travel from where I am. It, so, so there's a poem called Center of the World, which is... Which is um, a favorite poem to read because um, I don't know for some reason this is one of those poems that that you that you don't that I I find I don't have to measure the line it just it, it it's just like talking I'm just talking and it's one of those poems that came after a long absence of anything I was I was afraid I wasn't ever going to write again and <laughs> this came like at a four four o'clock in the morning and it it um. So it's it's kind of traveling without leaving home, a poem like that, um, which might do in these times, you know, that a poem from your window, so to speak, you know, so you can. Are in you, Brooklyn, you, if you think about it, um, at, well, I must go back. Chris, you, you remember Peter, our old um, director, principal? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he sent me a book about Brooklyn one time. It says, When Brooklyn Was the World. Was, was the title. And the cover, the picture on the cover of, of it was a picture of the very corner, the, the building right next to where I live now. And, and uh-huh. there, there's an awning and, and a, a horse and buggy, very, very, uh, you know, money looking kind of thing, you know, which is not what it is now, but that's what it was then. So when Brooklyn was the world, it's like, think about all the immigrants and so on, right? So I'm saying to Susanna, that you really don't have to go. All those people come here. You can see all their rituals. <laughs> you can see all their rituals right here. You know? So um, 
what's great maybe about I'll, I'll, maybe i'll just read like maybe two stanzas because it's a long poem i don't want to read the whole thing great but just to kind of show you how it how it um how it stretches itself out so you're in the house and you're wondering you know there's no poems are coming and you say well so literally the teaching is begin where you are right where you are put down your bucket where you are so it's the center of the world from here i can see the world all the people walking down flatbush avenue going into stores waiting at the bus stop all the late comers rushing into the subway cut a corner from my window across ocean avenue all the new immigrants in winter wearing too much clothes the police recruit from long island under the awning of the arab grocer salam i can hear the crack addict the last of his kind disappearing between the floorboards arguing with the arab chief the one with the scar on his left cheek next door to whom the asians scrape calluses from feet three times the size of their own giving them the designs they want star crescent half moon the flag of any country and so it goes you, you know the uh in this poem and uh, tell us the name of this one again it's called the center of the world thank you and, and it's, it's in, in the book the no no back door thank you one one of the things that is recurring in this conversation to me is the richness of this country because of uh all the different people that are here sheriff being one and the, the various mm -hmm. people you've talked about in this poem and it makes me teary eyed to think that we are moving against this richness in, in in this in this country it is if anything it is the thing that makes us the united kind of like the coming together of the world into this into this yeah. place and we're so rejecting it now or at least some some of us mm -hmm. are Susanna have you had moments in which you've come across a difficult moment of writing and you it, and it's like hard to get through and you put the bucket down and you write when i find i'm not writing i pull out the poems that need to be rewritten and i reverse them so that's that i work on that till i feel i can write again well this is a, a gross thing to say but it's it's like vomiting i mean you know when you have to, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> carolyn porche said that poetry was the voice of the soul well sometimes the soul isn't speaking you know so mm. i always think about um rilke right um doing no allergies and which begins with after a 10 year drought he hadn't written a thing and then that night it's a prayer right he runs out into the storm and he says who among the archangels would hear you know that's that opens a vein and that, that whole book flows out of that you know and the and the sonnets to orpheus as well yeah Mm -hmm. The opening of a vein. Of them, and he wrote them all in like weeks. When it's coming, you better put get it out because <laughs> you don't know when it's going to dry up on you. You better stay awake with it. Yeah. Who do you write for? I write for myself because I need it to feel alive. But 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 I enjoy having an audience, and that makes me feel more alive. I think I think I I, I write for the. poetry itself I, I, to see what it what it does and what it can do you know i think it's um and to to try to sometimes do things with it that surprise me so in a way it's it's um it's an enjoyable task sometimes you 
want to get psychoanalytic about it, I probably also write for my father, who was a, uh, an Eng a junior high school English teacher and also a failed playwright. And I think that um, somehow growing up, I was so socialized that this was a, not only a normal thing to do, but a, a desirable thing to do. Is he still with us, your father? Do you think of him when you write? Do you think do you, do you think you know if he would like it or not like it or? I I don't think of him when I write, but I do think of him when the books come out. Mm. Yes. I think sometimes too. I I write to make up for something I think I thought I didn't do. Mm. So sometimes when I think about my son, for example, the, I'm I'm constantly trying to apologize for not being there at certain points and so on. So I I create, I think more than three or four poems I've written talking talking to him about you know where where I was or, or why even though I don't know I hope that the poem can tell me and tell him so Chris so why did you ask well, do you had a question about goats well I did it was the question I've been wondering about and what's with the goats in your poems <laughs> now you <laughs> know both have we both have poems about goats now Baby goats are as cute as anything in the world. Uh, when I was in Nepal, I played around with a lot of baby goats, and they're fabulous little creatures. And grown-up goats have minds and personalities of their own, yeah. not always pleasant. But why goats? I, I I like I like them because well, mainly because my father raised them, you know, right. and, and but also um, they're very independent creatures, right? Um, yeah. If you go to Jamaica, they're just roaming the streets, almost like they have no owner, you know, and they find things to eat on their own. You, you, you really don't even have to, to feed them. They, they'll find something, you know, and they, they're tough. <laughs> they're tough, tough creatures, you know, and very much on, the, on their own. And Susanna and I connected over this whole goats thing, you know, um, and Susanna <laughs> likes all kinds of animals that um, some of which I, I like, like, Bats. You like bats, Susan? I think you <laughs> you find them cute also. And even I have a poem why I like goats, but uh, the goats do not thread through my work like this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. think, I think we need to so, finish up with it with two goat so poems. Should I? Okay, so I'll, I'll do the, my the goat dueling goats. With my dad here, okay? We'll go uh, out with the goats. Okay. <laughs> the almond tree and the goats. They stripped the trunk until the tree looked like an umbrella. My father, under its remaining shade, conductor turned minder of livestock, a pair of pens against the fence, pellets of dung everywhere. He'd rent out the mail, stern men discussing the terms as they led it by the horns to a female that would kick the gate to her stall before growing wall-eyed and still. There was good money in this. I saw the helpers sometimes come close to blows in a tug of war over the branches, Dakota picking the tiny leaves, saying they were the ones the animals loved most. Meanwhile, my dad on a low bench emptied worms from a kid's belly, his fingers going deep, searching for more. That image of the hand going in and searching for the worms. It's and it, it, it's a lasting image of my dad because here's a man that you, you think is so stoic and, and silent 
and here it's just a very tender moment him sitting on that low bench taking those worms very gently out of that kid's belly and it 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 tears me up every time i think about it as it as a good guy yeah 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 susanna what do you have for us you want me to read a go poem? Hold oh, on. yeah. She's got to go back to the archives. That's, that's the whole reason we're here. <laughs> it we wasn't were... about all the other stuff. It was about the goats. The goats, the goats. Yeah. Uh, I'm prepared to read a go poem. Okay, this is my only poem about goats. And it's... <laughs> well, you better get to work. <laughs> and it's from a book called Drugstore Blue. And it's called Capra. It's not actually called Why I Like Goats, but it's, it is Why I Like Goats. Capra from Drugstore Blue. I like goats for the horizontal pupils of their eyes. At the children's zoo, I pet their bristled coats, feed them kibble to feel those soft ruminant mouths, nibbles of their prehensile upper lips. Touring about in a car near Marrakesh, I laughed when I saw them in trees. They climb to eat the organ leaves and fruit. I like goats because they are funny when they balance their round rumps on a thin branch or race through a field, then leap for joy. Tom Robbins and even cowgirls get the blues wrote, people should go to goats instead of psychiatrists. <laughs> they don't say about as much, but goats don't send bills. I like goats for how they insert themselves in stories, those of a friend whose father kept them, and further back, Pan. There's Amalthea, who suckles Zeus after he is whisked away from the baby eater, and Hydrum, Odin's goat, who, in her udders, brews the mead for all the dead Norse warriors in Valhalla, who grazes on the leaves of Yggdrasil, the tree that supports nine worlds. So that's, a, that's actually a poem that has Mervyn in it. There we go. You, yes. were, you were pointing at Mervyn when you said, uh, "Yes, we got I know that." A man and, who, who and writes you about do goats. have another poem about goats. It's in your new book. It's called Herds. Oh well, okay. Yes, I don't. <laughs> I don't think of that as a poem about goats. I think of that as a poem. Oh, it starts about goats. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start with goats. Yes. So this has been far from an exhaustive look at your work, and we would love to have you back sometime. For instance, I know that Mervyn has been working with incarcerated youth in Trinidad, um, but we will have to hold that off for a future conversation. And, and I know I've, I started reading News of the Living, uh, Corona Poems by Mervyn Taylor, um, and it is so um, right to read right now. Um, it almost makes me feel like, oh, thank God we had the coronavirus so Mervyn could write these poems. No, no, no. So. <laughs> don't say that. No, no, yeah, no, no. no not But really. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I, I feel, it, it gives me hope. I don't know. It's like I, that the fact that you can even write about it, that a human yeah. being can like encompass this terrible thing and write about it. It's kind of what kept me going I guess through this whole thing every morning about 5.30 I got, I, one of those poems came out you know and um, it kind of kind of helped when, when the pandemic is passed or at least under control perhaps we can do another one of these in person at the bar with beers absolutely <laughs> you know we've been, we've been waylaid by uh, COVID-19 
but we'll be back. We'll be back. And thanks to our two poets, Mervyn Taylor and Susanna Case. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. This was a great hour. It was wonderful. You're tuned to the Poetry What Is It Good For podcast. Let us know if you want to receive the Poetry What Is It Good For newsletter with updates on our postings. You can write us at poetrygoodfor, that's one word, poetrygoodfor, at gmail.com. And consider donating to our efforts at our website, poetrygoodfor.com. And a great big thank you to Tim Gopperud for giving us permission to use his composition, Fantasia on Three French Carols, performed by Carrie Vecchioni on oboe and Ralph Erdahl on double bass, otherwise known as Oboe Bass. Bye.